Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. That was a spattering of different answers. Uh, so when I walked in this morning, I was handed this. Uh, so I'm guessing you guys are a little insecure over only scoring 23 against IU, but that's okay. And I said I was, that meant that I was going to turn my joke towards Ohio State, but I'm not going to do that for two reasons. Number one, I don't want to start a sermon by getting booed. That's for later. Number two, uh, again, you guys can only score 23 against us. You're going to have your own problems this year, so I'm okay. So uh, I do have one. So after the uh, IU game and after the Purdue also lost yesterday, which was important, to Fresno State, uh, there was an IU fan who just happened to be traveling through West Lafayette, uh, which is where Purdue is, if you don't know. And he stopped at a bar, and he's, this, he's a little older, and he's kind of scrawny, and, and his best days were behind him. And he went in, and, and he was just curious how everybody was responding and everything, and he sat down, and he looked at the guy next to him and said, hey, you want to hear a really funny Purdue joke? And the guy, you know, puffed up and looked at him, and he's like, listen, you see the bartender over there? He used to be a linebacker at Purdue. And you see those two guys at the end of the bar? They used to play on special teams at Purdue. And then that big group over there that just walked in, that's from the Purdue football team. And me, I used to play for Purdue too. And I'm 6'3", 235. Now, do you still want to tell this joke? And so the IU fan kind of smirks and looks over and he's like, nah, I don't want to have to explain it that many times. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, okay, so uh, we are doing a standalone message this week, and when I have this opportunity to just kind of say whatever is on my heart, it very often goes back to Revelation, because I love Revelation so much, and it's one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible or anywhere, because we look at it so often with fear. And we see this stuff, and it's like, man, dragons in the sky and seas of glass. I don't understand this. And there's a couple things to remember as we go into it. Uh, number one, this is John, who had lived his entire life as a disciple of Christ and, and had seen his friends, his brothers, his family, everyone he loved die. And he's exiled. And then he's taken up to heaven to see these things that he has no comprehension of, to, to see this glory of heaven that is just beyond description. And then he's shown a future of things that he just could not imagine. Imagine somebody uh, like one of the, the pilgrims from, from uh, the Mayflower, like coming to our time and seeing like a cell phone or a TV, like they have no idea what that stuff is. And so a lot of that is John seeing things and doing his best uh, through his point of view to describe things. And the other thing is it's unknowable on purpose. And if anyone ever says, hey, I know exactly what all of Revelation means and when it's going to take place, they, they don't. And that's because if we knew everything about Revelation and we knew the time and we knew the place and we knew exactly what it would look like, so many people would wait until right then, like five minutes before, to turn to Jesus. And when you do that, when you put it off and you put it off, that's a very dangerous game. Because your heart can harden or something else can happen and all of these things. And so Revelation is designed by God to be unknowable, but also to give us hope. And so I want to get into that. And I want to start, I want to go through Revelation chapter 5. Um, then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. 
There was writing on the inside and outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So one of the amazing things, it mentioned God on his throne. And what is really cool, when John first sees this in chapter 4, uh, he, he sees God on his throne, and it's so amazing and powerful. And there's a rainbow surrounding the throne. So this tells us the throne shows his omnipotence, his all power. But the rainbow is his promise, and he always, no matter his power, no matter his knowledge, no matter everything he could do, he limits himself by his own promises to us, for us. And it's so amazing to show us this vision of God and who he really is and, and how powerful he is and yet how loving. And because of that, everything is, is really crazy throughout this time for John. But he still feels that love and that hope and that glory and everything as he's there. Now, I know most of us grew up in school with scrolls. And, you know, that's how we read things and learned things. And uh, it, most of the time, for those of you that know, scrolls have writing on one side. This one has writing on two sides, which means there's a lot there. And that it's a special scroll, it's unique. And also it's sealed with seven seals. Now in, in ancient days, in Roman times and all of that, uh, scrolls, they would be wrapped with string, and then there'd be a wax seal placed on the string to hold it in place. And so in order to read it, you had to remove the wax and remove the seal. And so that's what we see here is the seven seals. And um, so they're all attached with wax, wax, and there's so many different theories as to this scroll. And this is where we start to get in to a lot of what's amazing to me about Revelation is there's so many different things that people see and they think and they wonder about. Uh, there are people that say the Old Testament or the Bible, but, but the, the angel says that no one is worthy and we have the Bible. So we know that it's probably not that um, some think that it's Revelation or the secret parts of Revelation or, or something to do with that. And maybe. But again, we have Revelation. So so who knows? We have one clue here, and this is where study is really cool, and we have one clue here. Roman law, again at that time with ancient scrolls, the only documents sealed with seven seals were wills, the last will and testament. So what does that tell us? This is God's will. Literally, this is God's will, and it is for us. It's him laying out everything for us, all of his knowledge, everything about us, before everything was created. He knew what would happen. Now, we still have free will, and he gave us free will. And so our choices are our own, but he knew. And yet he still sent his son. He knew, and yet he still gave us time. He still gives us this time. He still gives us so many chances, even knowing what would happen. And it is so amazing that that is true. Think about in your life. And people who have just disappointed you time and time again. And how you get to this point where it's like, man, I just don't know if I can trust them anymore. Now think about the millions and millions of people. The millions and millions of Christians who have disappointed God. And he knew that. He knew what Judas would do. He knew that Peter would run away. He knew all of these things. 
And yet he still set out this perfect plan to give everyone chance after chance after chance to turn to him, to have heaven, to have perfection. And as John goes on, he talks about a strong angel. And maybe that means it's an archangel, something like Gabriel. It'd be kind of cool for Gabriel to be there at the beginning of Jesus and then at this, but we don't know. Like I said, there's so much we don't know. What matters, though, is that for John, who had outlived everyone, for John, who had gone through so much, because it can be hard to be the last living one, he gets to see Jesus again. He gets to see heaven. He gets to feel God's presence. He gets all of this. And it must be so just overwhelming. Now, we're about to get into some revelation-y stuff. And it's fun, I promise. But I have a quote first from Billy Graham. I have read the last page of the Bible. It is all going to turn out all right. Keep this in mind. Not just as we go through Revelation, not just as you read it on your own this afternoon to prepare for Labor Day. And I'm guessing you guys are the ones that have nowhere to go for Labor Day weekend. That's cool. But keep it in mind as we face tragedy, as we face turmoil, as we see on the news, as we see political upheaval and just everything. It's all going to turn out. That doesn't mean we don't try and it doesn't mean we don't feel grief and it doesn't mean we don't suffer. It doesn't mean we don't care. All of that we still do. But we do it knowing that last page. It ends with Jesus' victory. That's written, that's game, that's over, that's everything. And that's more than like a 23-3 game. That's like a big game. You already forgot the Ohio State score? That's fine. (laughs) Listen, revelation can be tricky. I get that. But its beauty is in the hope. And you can have a thousand pastors preach or read about it a thousand different ways. But every single one of us agree on one thing. It ends with the victory of Jesus. It ends with the victory of Jesus and him coming back again and saying, guys, we now have paradise. Everything you've gone through has been for a purpose. Everything you've gone through has been to help others find the way to this moment. And that's how it ends. And so as we go to verse six, remember that it's going to be okay. Uh, So verse six. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. And I get this is where it's like, what? But I'll get to there. Don't worry. Uh, He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And, then, and when he took the scroll, the four living beings and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. It mentions the lion and the lamb and how Jesus is both. He he, he is a lion in terms of courage, in terms of bravery, in terms of power, in terms of glory. And a lamb because he's still peaceful. And he was a sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. 
And it showed, John mentions he looks like he'd been slaughtered. That means he continues to carry the marks of the crucifixion, of what happened to him, just as he did. We got a glimpse of this moment after the, the resurrection with his body. And he carries it not because he has to, but as a reminder for everyone who sees him of his sacrifice, of his constant sacrifice, of the way that he poured out his entire life, his entire death, everything for us, to everyone. It's a reminder of his constant love, his constant grace, of his power and his peace and his love and everything that he is. Now I get when you say, wait, how did Jesus get seven eyes and seven horns? Okay, so first, and you'll see this in chapter four and etc. I will say heavenly beings look different. Like angels, they're not like the little cherubs you see on precious moments. They're not. <laughs> but I think it's unlikely that Jesus grew horns and, and had eyes. So it's probably some form of crown or something. But what's important there is what they symbolize. You see, the light, the crown, the symbol, uh, the horn was a prophetic symbol of power. His sevenfold power, the unlimited power, the all power that he has. And then the eyes were indicative of knowledge and wisdom. So this is basically saying Jesus is omnipotent and omniscient. And yet he still carries the marks of his sacrifice. And that describes to us exactly who he is. And we can see that throughout his word, throughout his gospel, throughout his example. And it mentions 24 elders. And again, you can find just countless theories on who they are. There are people that think it's one person from each tribe of Israel or perhaps Jacob's son. Uh, and then also the disciples. Although if it's the disciples and John is seeing this and seeing himself, that'd probably be a little crazy for him. So maybe not. It could be 24 people from this service right now one day, maybe. Nobody thinks so, that's fine. It could be 24 great elders throughout time, 24 pastors, prophets. It could be a lot of different things. It could be some type of board. It could be some type of committee. It could change. It could just be 24 people that, that God saw something in. But what matters is they all worship Jesus. They're there in peace. They're there as elders. They're there. And yet they see that Jesus is worthy. And then the four living beings, and I encourage you to go back to chapter 4 and read the description of them. Because they have eyes all over them. And they each have different faces. One of them has the face of a man, which we get. One of them has the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. That's not what you expect when you read about Gabriel or somebody in the Bible. And again, we don't know exactly who they are. It could be the four archangels. Uh, they could represent, be representative of the types of life, uh, of the elements. Many people associate them with each gospel and the different things they bring out in describing Jesus. But again, I could go on and on. But what's important and what we see is they fall down and worship Jesus. Do you see a theme here? Everyone and everything falls down and worships Jesus because he is victorious, because he is love, because he is peace, because he is power. And he's the only one worthy. They recognize that he is worthy, worthy, that he's holy, that he is love. And he set an example. Each step of the way. 
by pouring out his life for us. He could have done so many different things. And yet, he set an example for us every step of the way, even to the end of times. And so everyone sees that he's worthy. And as you can find in the world, the people who are truly worthy don't go around yelling about it. They don't have to prove it. They just are. And Jesus is more than anyone, more than anything. He is the worthy one. He is who we live for. He is why we have revelation, why we have life. So what do we do with that? I have a quote from Mr. Rogers. Maybe one of the 24 tombs. All through his life and resurrection, Jesus demonstrates the power of showing and sharing God's love. Every time I write a script or a song or walk into the studio, I pray, let some word that is heard be thine. That's really all that matters. Now think about that for a second. I don't know exactly how many shows Mr. Rogers did, but it was in the hundreds, maybe even the thousands. Every single time, as he was writing it, as he was preparing, as he walked out there, he would pray, God, let one word that I say matter to someone, point to you. Let everything I do point to you. Let my example point to you. We must, we must want others to experience this. The purpose of our lives is not to be comfortable. We can be, that's fine. It's not to come to church and have fun. We can do that. The purpose of our lives is to help others see the way to Jesus. That's who we are. That's who we can be. That's who we should be. And Mr. Rogers, he was a really smart guy. Very creative. I'm sure everybody here has seen something to do with the Mr. Rogers episode, right? Everybody, pretty much? Good. Two people nodded, that's fine. I'm just talking to you too now. But he had amazing things, things that still continue into Daniel Tiger and other things today. He could have taken that and made a lot of money. He could have done things in a very different way and made his show about money, and made his life about making that money, and making a point, and, and just being that type of, of creative force. And yet, after every single show, he would stay there until the last child left. And if you've seen the movie that was based on him, not the documentary, but the one about the reporter, he would go to the families of people in his life that he didn't even know that needed prayer and sit with them in the hospital. He had enough money. He could have had more. And yet he wanted to be like Jesus. That was his purpose. That's who he was. And that's why we remember him. He loved like Jesus. He taught like Jesus. He prayed for the seeds he planted to grow. We can sit and we can wait and we can bring people in and we can explode in numbers and just be together waiting for the second coming. Or we can live for him. 
Work for him. Plant seeds for him. Pray for him. Show people who Jesus is, regardless of where we are. You see, revelation is not about the scariness. It is about the fact that when things end, there's only one side to be on. And it is the side of Jesus. And we have to see that, not only as hope, but as this strong calling to help people get there. And we do that through our example. We do that through our lives. We do that through who we are. Going through verse 11. Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus. Uh, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. Every living creature worships him. In the Bible, it says, one day every knee shall bow. That means eventually everyone, everyone is going to recognize who Jesus is. But there does come a point after they've died where it's too late. That has to give us some urgency. It has to show us who we have to be. It has to show us who we should be. And we look at Jesus. We look at the worship that he's given, the worthiness that he has. And everything about him, the song that they sing, everything always begins with his sacrifice and his death. The fact that he poured it out for us. The fact that everything was for us. The fact that his grace is why we live. He didn't win elections. He didn't want to run a political party. He didn't have riches. He lived in infamy in his time for the most part. And yet, he continued to live perfectly and holy and worthily for us. He could have easily, I said Mr. Rogers could have done some stuff. Jesus, more than anyone, could have easily lorded everything over everybody. He argued with the Pharisees in love and and helping them see the truth. He didn't have to do that. He could have immediately proven them wrong, taken away their mouths, closed them. He could have gotten off the cross. He didn't have to go up on the cross. He could have walked through life saying how right he is and proving how right he is over and over and over again and forcing people to see his point of view. And yet, the only person in the history of time who could actually do that didn't do that. Why? Because he wanted us to choose him. And he wanted us to see the example he was setting. He wanted us to see the sacrifice he was making. Over and over again, he sacrificed. Over and over again, he showed the example. Over and over again, he poured out his love. There's so much more to Revelation that I wish I could go through. And each seal that opens, that's where it gets really fun. Because you get... The possible coming of the Antichrist. You get some of the horsemen, like there's war and famine and death. 
And you guys don't seem to be as excited about that as I am, but it's really interesting. There are earthquakes and darkness and plagues and all of these things. Here's the secret, though. All the judgments, all the plagues, all the tribulation, that's for us. What? Why, why would we need that? Why? What in the world? Well, regardless of where you believe the rapture happens, and I personally believe it happens before, there will be people in those times who choose to follow Jesus. Revelation, especially the tribulation parts, is God saying, I've given you chance after chance after chance. And yet, here's one more. Before things end, here's one more chance. He doesn't have to do that. He could just snap his fingers right now and boom, it's over. And everybody who believes in him, we're in heaven and everybody else is gone. But he gives, even in the end of times, this new chance to have something to fight against, to see his power, to see man. Everybody who believed is gone, but, but I get it now. And for it not to be too late, for those people to say, wow, please, Jesus, save me. And they will be. Again, he doesn't have to do that. But it's for us. It's to give people a chance. The reason the end of times haven't happened yet, the reason it's on and on and who knows when it's going to happen, is so more and more people have a chance to choose him. That's what we should want with our lives. To show people that they have a choice, that there is a way, that this is how you live it. He always gives one more chance of grace, of hope. Listen, life is hard. And it'll be even harder then. But as long as there is life, there is hope. Hope in his salvation. Hope in his redemption. Hope in heaven. As long as there is life. There is hope. I cannot end without a quote from C.S. Lewis. At the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say we have never lived anywhere except in heaven, and the lost we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. There are people in this world who have never been shown love, never been shown grace, never been shown understanding, have been told that they are worthless. They've been ignored, they've been hated, they've been mocked, they've been lost. And their lives are just like hell. That has to hit us. I've said this before, I will say it again. Not only might we be the only example of Jesus someone sees, we have to. More than attendance, more than money, more than what denomination you are, more than any of that, we have to be the example of Jesus to help people see that there is a heaven. To help people see that there's a way out. To help people see that they are not lost. There's a reason Jesus had a lot of parables about seeking the lost. 
There's a reason he left the 99 sheep. Not because he didn't care about the 99 sheep. He did. But because they were already saved. And he went and he found the one. And then he looked to his followers and said, go do that. And he said to the Pharisees, hey, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. That doesn't mean don't minister to other Christians. It doesn't mean don't talk to other Christians. It doesn't mean don't pray with other Christians. Don't be in small groups. None of that. Those are all good things, all important things. But it means that we cannot bubble ourselves off away from everybody who's different than us, everybody who disagrees with us, everybody who is not like us, because we have to be like Jesus. We get to be like Jesus. It's easy to look at the world, to look at politics, to look at whatever you want to look at, the news, and to think, man, there is just no hope. We have to be an example of that hope. We have to go out there. And instead of saying, man, nobody's doing anything, go out there and do things. We always, in the church, the Capital C Church, call for a revival. Man, I wish there was a revival. I wish we could have a revival. And we just keep sitting there. We have to be that revival. We have to show people, hey, Jesus loves you. He died for you. And I'm going to show you how much that means to me. I'm not going to prove myself right. I'm going to show you what love really is. I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to love for you. I'm going to show you grace and hope and hope that that seed grows. Here's the thing. This is one more interesting thing about Revelation. From chapter 4 on, where it gets to the fun stuff, never once is the word church mentioned. Never once. So what's that mean? The church will still exist in some form because God's church always exists. Probably not going to be buildings. Probably not going to be what we're used to, what we're comfortable with. The church didn't start out like that. But what is mentioned over and over again is Jesus and followers of Jesus. We have an important calling. And it is to show people the way to Jesus is to show people the love of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. We can live comfortably. And we can be right. And we can win arguments. And we can make people feel bad about themselves. And we can watch as they don't turn to Jesus. Or we can do what he did. He who was worthy, he who is holy, he who could have done whatever he wanted and loved them and show them what it means to be a Christian. Show them what it means to live in grace. Show them what it means to be like Jesus. And here's how. Not in there. There you go. I have said those words more than any other words aside from maybe Beatrice and Stevie, yes. 
when I turned in my resume for here, I described my ministry through those four words. My faith through those four words. When the Pharisees and everyone around him asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God, agape, unconditionally. Love God with everything you are. But he didn't stop there. He said that's vital, that's important, that's the most important thing. But there is a second thing just as important. Love others. And he did not change the word for love. He also used agape, that means love others unconditionally. But they're jerks to me. You've probably been a jerk to them before too. But they like Michigan. Everybody makes mistakes. When the end comes and Christians are in heaven, it's not just going to be Methodists and it's not, not just going to be Nazarenes, it's not just going to be Baptists, it's not just going to be Catholics. On and on. Ultimately, None of us, any denomination or non-domination, is going to have 100% correctness on doctrine. That's why Jesus simplified for it, simplified it for us. Love God, honor Him, pray to Him, worship Him, live for Him, show examples of Him, and then love others. Don't shame them. Don't hate them. Don't cut them off. Love them. Revelation is a love letter. Because it shows us that where we look and we see chaos and craziness and a disorder, God has a plan. A plan that we may not understand, but a plan that is perfect. And a plan that was designed for us, for everyone. I once used a quote, and I don't remember it exactly, but it was basically, Jesus died on the cross for each individual person as if they were the only person in the world. That's before they were believers. We have to be better. If I can leave you with anything, we have to be better. We have to love God fully. We have to love others the same. And we have to show people what it truly means to live for Him. That's all I got.